Can I ask you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Acts chapter 1? Acts chapter 1. I want to read the first 11 verses of this great book to you, and then I want to talk to you about the mission of God and what God has called us to not only as a church but as individuals. Acts chapter 1. I'll read verses 1 through 11. This is the word of God for his people. In the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can come now and open your word, and we can hear you speak to us by the Holy Spirit. We pray that your Holy Spirit would illuminate your word to our hearts today that this would not just be an exercise of opening and reading and listening, but that there would be a spiritual exchange that happens in true dialogue as you speak to each heart in this room and as you speak to this heart, the one who preaches. I pray that you'd give me grace this morning to deliver the message that you have, Lord, for your people. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple of years ago, I was traveling in West Africa Uh, heading over to teach a seminary class on the book of Genesis to a group of first-generation West African pastors. These men, in fact, aren't even ordained yet. They're they're studying for their ordination. But they are an eager group of of candidates already out ministering and evangelizing in their villages and communities. And they were telling me of this story of how they had sent some of their own into the interior of the country— Uh, to minister among their own people, who were the Fulani people. And these Fulani people were spread across several villages of the interior of this country, and they went out and they started to preach the gospel village to village. And they were overwhelmed with both the openness and the responsiveness of the people to what they were preaching. In fact, many people were giving their hearts and their lives to Jesus Christ by the numbers And they were so intrigued by this that they started to sort of sit down with some of these people who wanted to become Christians out of a Muslim background and ask them questions about their background and their village and 
and their openness to the gospel. And what they found out was so surprising. They found out that the people, for the most part, who were becoming Christians were not Fulani people at all. They were actually people from a different tribal group called the Kanyaji people. Now, the Kanyaji people had assimilated into these Fula villages. They are kind of a, an outcast tribal group. They don't really want people to know they're Kanyaji. They speak their own language, which is Wami, at home when they're with their families and out and about, they speak Fula. But, but person by person by person, house to house, these were all Kanyaji people who were becoming Christians. Now, what's amazing about that is that the Kanyaji people group are one of the most unreached people groups in the world. And up until that time, there were maybe a handful of Christians in the history of the church from this tribal group. It was amazing. A thousand Kanyaji people became Christians in a few months of evangelizing village to village. But that's not the end of the story. What's even more amazing than that, perhaps, is that just over the border in Senegal... There was an older missionary couple who had been working with Wycliffe for 25 years. And their job was to take the Wami language of the Kanyaji people, put it in written form so that they could translate the New Testament. And this couple had spent the last 25 years trying to crack the code on the Wami language and translate the New Testament, and they were nearing the completion of Revelation not knowing this whole time if there would ever be any Kunyaji believers who would ever want to read their New Testament. And I got to be there for a quick meeting in a hotel lobby, passing through, to sit down with this couple and a few other missionaries and to tell them that their life's work <laughs> for the last 25 years had great meaning and that there were a thousand Kunyaji people who wanted to read the New Testament in their language. Friends, that's happening not only in West Africa, it's, it's really happening all over the world. And it begins right here in Acts chapter 1, these verses that I've read to you, these 11 verses that begin this great book. And what I'd like to do is share with you what I believe are three underlying convictions that fueled missions in the early church and continue to fuel missions and are the driving force of missions today. If you and I are going to participate in the mission of God, we must be gripped by these convictions. Now, most commentators will outline this section like this, the prologue, verses 1 through 3, the Apostles' Commission, verses 4 through 8, and Jesus' ascension to heaven in verses 9 through 11. That's a great outline. But for our purposes this morning, and to keep things very simple, I'd like to follow the line of these convictions, which are these. Number one, Jesus is alive. Number two, he has a kingdom. And number three, he's promised power. So you might think of that simply as resurrection, kingdom, and power. Let's talk about the first of these. Jesus is alive. Notice how Luke tells us this in verse 1. He says, in my first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. He mentions a first book. Well, in fact, Acts is sort of volume two of Luke's two-volume series, which began with the Gospel of Luke. But notice the word began. The word began. Luke puts his book in perspective when he says, these are the things that Jesus began to do. You see, the Gospel of Luke is just the beginning of what Jesus did and taught. Acts 
Acts is the continuation. So, so we're wrong to think about Luke and Acts this way. If we say part one is what Jesus did during his earthly ministry, and part two is what the church did. No, Luke won't have that. In fact, if we could give this book, which goes by the title The Acts of the Apostles from about the second century on, maybe a different title would be this, The Continuing Mission of Jesus. The Continuing Mission of Jesus. Now, in what sense is Jesus alive? Well, I was surprised as a college student, shortly after I became a Christian, to learn that there were a group of scholars that were teaching or or espousing a different understanding of Jesus' resurrection. They were reading those gospel accounts that we'll read in a few weeks here at Easter time about the resurrection and the post-resurrection of Jesus. And what these scholars, these liberal scholars, were saying is that what's happening here is that these apostles are trying to take the memory of Jesus, which is filling their minds and hearts, and they're trying to give it symbolic representation in these various post-resurrection appearances. In fact, one liberal scholar literally says this, Emmaus never happened. Emmaus always happens as we carry around the memory of Jesus in our minds. But friends, that's not Luke's conviction at all, is it? It's not a mere memory of Jesus that's driving the church through the book of Acts and it's driving the mission of God around the world today. Look at verse 3. Luke says, He, that's Jesus, presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them for, for 40 days. Notice those words. He presented himself alive, not as a memory, by many proofs showing them probably his scars, his wounds, eating in front of them and appearing to them for, for 40 days. So this wasn't just a one-off kind of thing, but it's, it's constant exposure to the physical person of Jesus who had been risen from the dead for 40 days. And then verse 4 says, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem. And there's a little problem with this word staying for these liberal scholars. In fact, some of your Bibles will have a footnote to this effect, and you'll trace it down to the bottom, and it will say that this word, when it's used in the New Testament, oftentimes means eating, gathering and eating with people like you'll do this evening when every one of you comes to the mission dinner, right? You'll be staying with people. You'll be eating with them. And then in verse, verses 9 through 11, of course, right? And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight while they were gazing into heaven as he went. Behold, two men stood by them in white robes. So there's the apostles. They're standing there. Jesus is being taken up in front. If Jesus is just a powerful memory on their minds, then what is this whole event? Is this the apostles finally letting go of the memory of Jesus? It makes no sense. And, and what also doesn't make sense is the promise of his return. Because what, is, what are we waiting for? Are we waiting for the powerful memory of Jesus to return someday? You see, it doesn't make sense. Luke is trying to tell us from the very early verses of Acts that, that this Jesus who rose again from the dead is alive. He's alive in North Wilmington. He's alive in West Africa. Now, why is that important? Well, it's important because without the resurrection, Christianity is the promise of life 
from a dead king. The promise of life from a dead king. And friends, wherever you go in the world, that's bad news. That's bad news for North Wilmington, and it's bad news for West Africa. The resurrection of Jesus is the linchpin of the gospel that we believe. Without it, our faith, Paul says, is futile, and we're still in our sins. You see, when when God raised the Father, raised Jesus from the dead, he was putting an exclamation point on the sacrifice of Jesus, and he was saying, this sacrifice is acceptable on your behalf. Jesus has done all the work necessary for your salvation. And the proof of it is, I've raised him from the dead, and so your justification is in his death and and in his resurrection. Thousands of people were crucified by the Romans in the first century. But only one was raised from the dead. Death carries... We didn't coordinate this. We sang about it already. Death carries with it a sting. And the sting of death is sin. And that sting transcends people and cultures all over this world because all men have sinned. The greatest fear of people in the city where we'll be living is the fear of death. It might be the greatest fear of your neighbors too, but it is a palpable fear in West Africa. In this city of three and a half million people, 95% of whom are Muslim, people are searching for a peace, a peace they can't find in Islam, a peace they can't find in African traditional religion. A peace that is so elusive because death is always threatening existence. And the reason why death is the greatest fear is because Islam offers no real hope in death. You see, the hope of these 95% is that they will do enough to gain Allah's approval so that on the day they die, they are given entrance into eternal life. But they have no assurance that they've ever done enough, that they've kept the Quran enough, that they've been devout enough as Muslims. And so there's this weight over all of them that they're going to die without any certainty that Allah is going to say, you've done enough. You see, Islam is a latter religion. You know what a ladder religion is? A ladder religion is a religion that says you have to climb these rungs all the way up to heaven, all the way up to paradise. The problem is that the ladder is like never-ending. As far as you can look, there's another rung. And you get halfway up the ladder in your life, and your hands are tired, and you can't climb anymore, and you realize you're not really a good Muslim at all. Christianity is not a ladder religion. Christianity is built on a cross, not a ladder. And and there's a world of difference between a ladder and a cross. A cross is a bridge. A cross says that Jesus came and he died and he suffered for you because your hands were weak and because the ladder was too high and because you'd never make it. So Jesus came and he died for us 
to set us free from our sins and to give us the hope of eternal life. And it's a hope with certainty, a hope with assurance. It's a hope that millions of Muslim people in West Africa desperately need. You know, sometimes these fears in West Africa are codified in certain superstitions. And one superstition that I'll never forget concerns funerals. After a funeral, like funerals in our country, people gather and they eat. They have a party. And usually every party has a table set out right in the open, and there's a bowl on the table. And filling that bowl are what I like to call Dunkin' Donuts munchkins, but they're not, and they don't taste like that either. But they're little bread balls. They're little bread balls. And the belief is that the first person who reaches their hand in the bowl and grabs a bread ball is the next person who's going to die. So it's the strangest thing because it's a, it's a bowl of bread balls, perfectly good and nice bread balls that no one wants to touch and no one wants to eat. But the amazing thing is to see Christians in that context storming the table, throwing their hands in the bowl, pulling out bread balls, and with great freedom throwing them down one after another, and everyone's standing around saying, how can these people do this? Aren't they afraid? They're not afraid. And in a few minutes, we will storm the table. We will throw our hands fearlessly into these trays, and we will pull out bread. It is a symbol of Jesus' body, broken for you and for me. And we will eat, and we will live. Because our king is not dead. He's alive, and that's good news. If you've come here this morning embracing a latter religion, or if you've even conceived Christianity to be a latter religion. Friends, it's not. It's a cross. It's built upon a cross. Jesus is alive. And that's good news for us. It's good news for the people of our city. There is a kingdom. I've always marveled at the way Luke puts this. Look at verse 3. He says, appearing to them for 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. The substance of Jesus' teaching for 40 days was the kingdom of God. Everything was about the kingdom. He needed not only to convince them that he was alive. It took 40 days to convince them. It was really him. But that he had a kingdom. And here's the thing. Jesus isn't simply about spiritual converts around the world. He is about that, but it's a lot bigger than that. He's about a kingdom filled with spiritual converts. He's ushering in and bringing sweeping reforms and eventually worldwide renewal at his return. And the talk of his kingdom was always on his lips, even while he was here. He taught his disciples to pray. Pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. He taught them to seek first the kingdom. In Mark's gospel, he says, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. You see the connection there between kingdom and gospel. So what is this kingdom? Well, you can see that after all of the teaching that Jesus had done on the kingdom, the disciples are still a little fuzzy. Look at verse 6. They ask, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? You see, what they envisioned is a restoration of the Old Testament kingdom of Israel. They envisioned Jesus flexing his muscles and driving the Romans out and establishing his throne in Jerusalem. That's what they wanted. But Jesus' kingdom is not a 
competing political kingdom. It's not a geographic territory. In fact, Jesus told Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. The kingdom that Jesus spoke about is a completely upside-down kingdom. God's kingdom is here. I'd love it if there were a verse in the Bible, by the way, that said the kingdom of God is, equals. It's one of those, the kingdom is one of those elusive concepts. You have to piece together parts of the Bible to understand. I'd like just a neat description or definition of the kingdom. The closest we have is in Romans 14, 17, where Paul says, for the kingdom of God is a matter of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. But that's really a description also of the kingdom. So here's my best definition. (laughs) After 16 years of pastoral ministry of the kingdom of God, and if I'm wrong, Pastor Kevin can correct me next Sunday. The kingdom of God is the unstoppable reign of God through Jesus to bring righteousness, peace, and joy to every sphere of life and all people. That's the kingdom of God. The unstoppable reign of God through Jesus to bring righteousness, peace, and joy to every sphere of life. The kingdom of God is here in this room right now. It's in your midst. It may be in you. If you're in Christ, if you're a Christian this morning, you're part of this kingdom. And your life involves this kingdom. Incidentally, have you ever thought about the way Jesus leaves the world in verse 9? Jesus could have just disappeared. He could have walked off into the woods and never come back. He could have been beamed up like Star Trek. But he didn't do that. And and this is a very carefully staged event in verse 9. To impress upon these apostles and you and me today... That he wasn't just leaving, but he was ascending. He was ascending to his throne. This has all the marks of a coronation, all the marks of a king ascending to his throne. It's a heavenly coronation. Jesus the king is ascending to the Father's right hand to rule. And he's saying, the world is mine. That's what he's saying in verse 9 in this ascension as he's taken up. He's saying, the world is mine. All authority has been given to me. And he says to you and me this morning, and to you specifically, Faith Presbyterian Church, I give you the world. I give you the world. I am heir of all things, and you are co-heirs, joint heirs with me. A couple of things to note. First of all, Jesus' kingdom reaches to the ends of the earth. Look at verse 8. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. That's all nations. That's West Africa. That's India. That's China. That's Peru. That's North Wilmington. And notice also that Jesus' kingdom Though it is spiritual and though it is invisible, we live to make it more and more visible. It conquers darkness. It transforms not only people but villages and towns and cities and cultures, bringing truth, beauty, and goodness everywhere it touches. 
There's nothing passive about praying, your kingdom come. We're asking God to open our eyes to see the world and all of its hurt the way he sees it. Sees it. We're asking him to eradicate evil everywhere it exists, starting in our own lives. We're asking him to unsettle us in our comfortable lives and put everything we have on the line for his kingdom. When we pray, your kingdom come, we're not praying a passive prayer. The kingdom of God is becoming more and more visible in West Africa. Every time I travel there, I'm astounded by new signs of truth, beauty, and goodness in the city where I'm going to live. The most vulnerable people in that city are children, and among those children, the most vulnerable are young girls who are being trafficked now at an astounding rate. And our young pastors, first-generation Presbyterian ministers, are throwing open the doors of their homes and starting children's homes for these girls to come live in. My good friend and colleague has 20 girls living in his home. He was supposed to come visit me in the fall and visit churches. He was too busy starting a second home for 20 more girls. And the neighborhoods where these homes are know what's going on, and they're astounded. They're, how are these Christians throwing their doors open to these girls, the youngest of whom is three or four years old, rescued out of an unimaginable life, given a place to live, laugh, and learn about Jesus? And many of them are becoming believers, though they don't need to be Christians to come live in this home because Christians care for everyone. They bring truth, beauty, and goodness to every sphere of life. There's a kingdom. And thirdly, there's power. Jesus promised power. And boy, do we need power. Does this man up front need power? How would a band of unschooled peasants, nobody's really, turn this world upside down for Jesus? They would do it with a power that they did not yet possess. It would be a kingdom kind of power. Notice in verse 4, Jesus orders them not to depart, but to wait for the promise of the Father. The promise was the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I love this. It's almost like Jesus is saying, don't you dare leave this city until you get the power. And that is ascension. In verse 8, what does he say? You will receive power, dunamis, dynamite, to be my witnesses. So there's an important sequence of events, an unbroken theological chain, really, that begins with Jesus' conception, his, perfect, his birth, his perfect life, his death, his resurrection, and now his ascension to his throne. And in Acts 2, the gift of the Holy Spirit bestowed by Father and Son, upon the church. Listen, the full extent of this power is not so you can get up and do your devotions tomorrow morning. The full extent of this power is not so you can raise godly children, though all of these things are important and I need more power for that second one. The full extent of this power would be realized as we step into the work of world witness and global evangelization to speak boldly with our lives on the line. It's the power that bubbles up with great conviction. It's the power that makes us effective for the cause. 
And we need that power. You need that power to be witnesses right here in North Wilmington. But Jim Weaver needs that power to go and live in a city where I'm unbelievably outnumbered and where death reigns and where it's heavy on people's shoulders and where everyone is climbing a ladder, an unending ladder to paradise. I need power. A.T. Pearson Presbyterian minister back in the 1800s, probably singularly responsible for the student missions movement, wrote this in his day. He said, to do this work in 20 years, <laughs> he's writing in the 1800s, he thinks he can complete the Great Commission in 20 years. He says, we might, must get more gospel, more vitality. The church has money, brains, organizations, rivers of prayer, oceans of sermons, but she lacks power. And for this, we must plead. We must plead and ask for this kind of power. A little while back, I received a a quick email, a note from one of our pastor, African pastors. He writes, I visited Guinea-Conakry on my last trip to Guinea-Bissau. I had to go through the border at around 2 a.m. because of the Ebola problem. The borders had been closed. When I arrived, I was greatly welcomed, and we had an open service with the brethren. The following day, the Muslim population invited me to lead them in prayer, and this surprised me, and I told them, I'm not a Muslim religious leader, but a Christian, and they responded, our imam is dead, and our mosque has not been open since that time. We had been praying in our homes since then, but seeing you Christians gathered and singing, we are challenged and we would want to gather along with our Christian neighbors in our mosque and have you lead us in any form of prayer you'd like. So, he's writing this to me. (laughs) I consulted the Christian friends who invited me to the community, and they thought it is fun and ironic because the same Muslims have been disturbing them and persecuting them socially for years. I felt it strange for since I was saved by the grace of God, I never want to enter a mosque even for the fun of it. After some time of reflection, I agreed with the Christian friends and the following Sunday we had our service in the village mosque. The Christian brethren led the praise and worship and prayer, and the Muslims just listened and kept on saying amen all the way through. I love this. I preached on the miracles of Jesus from the book of Luke, all of them. (laughs) I just kept on reading and explaining briefly to them as they listened. The Christians were a bit bored during my sermon. But you should have seen the faces of these Muslims. Later, they told me to come back, but I did not promise. One of the leaders of this community called me on my cell phone to tell me every Sunday, all the village now comes to gather under a tree to hear the word of God preached to them. It's like something out of the pages of the book of Acts. It's happening all around the world. This is the power that we're drawing on. Supernatural power from the Holy Spirit. It's the power that that my family is asking for because we will need it. The work of missions in West Africa is tireless. It's endless. The workers are few. The opposition is great. When someone becomes a Christian, they're abandoned by their family. They become the responsibility of the church. They lose their jobs. 
I've had a friend whose father went after him with a machete when he became a Christian. But the power, the power to speak boldly of the king who is alive never ceases to amaze me. Will you stand with us? Will you stand with us not just with your financial support, which we are really grateful for, but will you stand with us in prayer in the coming years? Will you ask the Lord on our behalf to give us power each and every day to make his name known? My prayer is that God would bring an explosion of missions to Faith Presbyterian Church, which has a long legacy of tremendous mission involvement, that that would continue and that you would see your sons and daughters sent out to all corners of this world. Let me pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you that, Jesus, you are alive, that our king is not dead. We thank you that you have a kingdom that's here. And we thank you, Lord, that you've promised power to the weak to be witnesses of all of this. Bless us. Bless our brothers and sisters in West Africa today as they gather to worship, Lord, as they already have gathered to worship. Be with Faith Presbyterian Church, Lord, as they continue to be a part of this global witness of Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name.